Let's crack on with it. Welcome to the show, Mr. Michael Storm. Hello. It's nice to be on again. How are you? I'm radiant, thank you. And yourself? Radiant? Good Lord. It's, well, I mean, so it's it's nine o'clock on a Saturday morning for me, so I'm sort of grouchy and hungover. It's 2pm on a Saturday for me, you know. By now I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. If it was probably nine o'clock on the Saturday morning, I'd still be the same. I'd be the same for me. <laughs> well, this is good then. So we're going to bring two sort of unique and dynamic energies to this. You're going to be the upbeat, passionate, friendly one, and I'm going to be, let's say, the bad cop. <laughs> um, that's always the best way to go, I think. <laughs> so, um, so we're we're here to talk about dark progeny, but let's talk uh, first. Let's just briefly dive into your experience of reading the eighth doctor books did you do that at the time i did for most of them yes um um i was a little too young for the new adventures when they came out because i'd have been about was it 1991 the first one it was indeed in there i would have been nine when that was published so all right all right shout so, out <laughs> yeah. but so they were a little bit you know, a little bit too advanced i do attempt i do recall he was in my final year of primary school attempting to read part of cat's cradle times crucible and i think i just kind of went Wah? yes <clears throat> uh, so i think i missed them off i think i'd read a couple of the missing adventures a few years later I think it was evolution by john peel and System Shock by Justin Richards, which I think for someone who's about 12, 13, were a bit more accessible at the time. Mm, yeah. So I started reading the new... I got into the new Avengers towards the tail, age, the tail end of the range, and the first... So the first proper new adventure I read was Christmas on the Rational Planet. What a great place to start! Oh, wow! <laughs> it did actually take me two attempts, but... Um, I started it, and then I um, read um, one of the fourth Doctor books by the author who we shall not mention. I see, yes. And then um, I came back to wow. it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we just recorded our episode on Christmas on a Rational Planet, and I really hadn't realised quite how, 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 how hard it is to get to grips with. And this would have been the third or the fourth time that I've read it in sort of 30 years, and I just about got my head around it this time. But you as a small must have been floundering helplessly. Yes, I think it I think it clicked about the fourth chapter in on the second time. Yeah. Wow, okay. So I picked up most of the, the tail end of the new adventures. Um, Rather annoyingly, I did see Lungbarrow in the shop at the time, but I didn't have enough money on me, on me to buy it. And when I went back the next week, it wasn't there. And I oh. couldn't come, and I never found a copy of Dying Days. Oh, I mean, I, I've got them both, but you can't have mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but fortunately, I have, in the meantime, acquired um, acquired a copy of Lungbarrow. So I went on holiday with uh, then partner, and she basically bought it me as. Her car for the holiday cost. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's that's one of the most romantic things I've ever heard. So, oh. 
However, it's it's in, it's it's in my cabinet and it's a bit unread at the moment. It's still unread at the moment, but I'll get round to it. So I mean, there's no rush. <laughs> so basically, I was pretty much started with the Eighth Doctor range when it started, and pretty much followed it. <laughs> there's a few, you, a few exceptions I didn't buy because money yeah. story didn't interest me. Didn't right. feel like the author. Or right, okay. It's interesting that that there are people who are happy to sort of you know cherry pick the books they want rather than people are either yeah i bought every single one irregardless and read it and it was lovely or i didn't bother with the range at all so you're kind of an outlier in that you were prepared to use you know sort of taste and preference (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I'd picked up um, authors I'd reckon I'd probably read more Missing Adventures than New Adventures so I'd picked up on some of the authors so I knew so if somebody was Christopher Bewis I'd probably enjoy it if it was uh, David A. McGinty I'd probably or was it McEntee? I'm not quite sure <laughs> I think it I think it's McEntee Yeah uh, so I'll, that, I'll ask him Okay <laughs> But I'll, yeah, you know, sort of names I'd recognize. I knew the book. I knew some of his books. So I thought, oh, if I read this one, it'll probably be a good one. Yeah, yeah. But I, then I settled into all the new names coming in. So like uh, Johnny Morris and uh, Matt. Well, say Lance was fairly new, but he had been the new adventures. Yeah, you forget people like Lance Parkin and Lawrence Miles kind of got one in at the in the end of the Virgin era, so because they feel very Eighth Doctor authors, don't they? They do. Yeah. So and Kate Allman and, John, and Jonathan Blum, but I think Kate Allman was probably a bit above my head up to begin with, and I was probably at the right level intellectually age to get things like Seeing Eye and uh, Unnatural history. Yeah, their books were always they they put so many ideas in them and so many references that even the first you know ten or twenty books which they wrote for Virgin I found very hard going. Yeah, I think there's a little sense of a couple of them of first novel syndrome of I might not get a chance to write another so I'm going to put as much as I can in. Which is understandable, you know. Um, I'd have been exactly the same. Um, so what? Without sort of without being you know unfair to writers and saying what are your favourites and least favourite of the books, what are the kind of big uh, story arcs in the Eighth Doctor series that that you really enjoyed? I quite enjoyed the initial Amnesia on Earth arc, but ironically, I think the weakest of that was the first one. I couldn't get, I just couldn't get into that one. The burning, yeah. The burning, yeah. But... Yeah. I might, I'll give it another bash. It might just seem to me a long time to get going. And I think it was well, once, I think it, the first initial batch is, there were okay books, but there wasn't anything. I didn't particularly think the, the Sam and Doctor Separation trilogy really worked. No, I think, uh, but, I, th- I, th- I don't know about you, but I think because Sam wasn't based on like a real there wasn't an actress that we could have in our minds. So uh, there wasn't. It was harder to get emotionally invested. Um, yeah, it's um, not. They were. It's clear that the authors really weren't quite sure what direction the character was going to be, and if she was supposed to be a sort of eco warrior, but she seemed to be like it was a middle class person's idea of what an eco warrior is. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's and that's probably mainly due to Uncle Terence, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I think uh, Jonathan Blum and Kate Orman really pick up on her. And so I think Mark Morris did in the uh, Body Snatchers uh, at least gave her more sense of authentic London person than. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I say, I think when Fitz comes along, I think it starts to starts to gel. And I think, I, being at that age, I think I, I related to Fitz. But I think one of the things is when the when the character was announced in Doctor Who magazine, they kind of gave you some comparisons to go to. So we saw Adam Adamant meet Villa Restall, mm. and there were bits and pieces like he wanted to be a, be a, be a musician, and I knew people at school who were trying to do sort of grunge indie bands so I had, I had a kind of frame of reference so sure. I got, yeah I said I, I, I said although mentally speaking he kind of looks like a combination of my mate Shaggy and Villa <laughs> from Blake 7 <laughs> in my mental image in and my he's called mental Shaggy image. just Scooby-Doo not for other uh, reasons <laughs> yeah in my mental image he looks like a guy called Darren that, that lived in a shared house at university he was about 30 and he was training to be a teacher and he was just a chain-smoking nervous wreck and that's but it's important to have someone in your mind for some of these characters or they do become very you know hard to to really like someone like tricks now i've not read a tricks novel for 20 odd years and i'm sure i'll be reading one soon because these are things are coming up in a fairly random order but i don't remember a single detail about her as a character I think they're quite deliberately vague about it to begin with, though, and that's... Oh, in that, but, in that case, that's good. That means they've done their job, and I as a reader... The problem is, if you're giving a bit vague, you need to have something substantial. And like you say, I can't remember huge amounts about the character from there on. Yeah. So, anyway, so so we're, we're going to talk about Dark Progeny. I'm assuming you read um, Steve Emerson's other book first, Casualties. Yes, yes, um, Casualties of War. I thought it was one of a very impressive debut book. Yes, we we loved it on the show. Uh, it's uh, one of the things that struck me about it was, from my point of view, it was kind of like had that weird sort of vendorish sort of setting of a quite a quaint English village of something sinister going in, and the Eighth Doctor turning up as a sort of pseudo steed, and we have that Mrs. Peel surrogate. All these spots for me. Yeah, no, that's uh, a that's a good reading. Um, we it, we just felt it was it was it was like a sort of very small scale low stakes historical um, kind of like a sort of Sebastian folks World War One kind of kind of novel. Um, yeah, uh, I think the only thing which really let it down was that the villain kind of has to be a villain for the sake of being a villain. Oh, we better make him. Yeah, we have to we have to have a villain. Let's let's create a character and make him objectionable for 200 pages and then <laughs> yeah. hey presto he's the villain and everyone's like no really <laughs> uh, but be, i think from that story it would have been more interesting if he was slightly more ambiguous he was doing nasty things you're just doing nasty things and it was the a side effect rather than yeah it was it was one of those plots which ultimately uh, you know you you got you got all the working out you needed, but you still had to do a lot of work as a reader to kind of make total sense of it. Yeah. His his scheme was not elaborately fleshed out, um, but yeah, you know, you obviously enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, Emerson obviously has the the knack when it comes to writing uh, this kind of book. So let's let's jump into Dark Progeny. 
No, I think this is this, this term which has been bended about a couple of times for Dark Poetry, but it is very much the difficult second album. And then there's a, I think there's a couple of recurring themes which were in Casualties of War, which crop up again here. And there's mm. some inversion in, in that Casualties of War, we've got an, the method we've got in the quaint English village, but you've got the comparison with the mud and slides and grim griminess of trenches. Here we've got storms, mud, grime, and with the attempt of terraforming into into Eden, basically. Yes. Yeah, it's it's that's a very good observation because yeah, they they both hinge on kind of survival being linked to the relationship with the land and 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 your earth and your little bit of space and in many ways i suppose it is a, a direct continuation you know this this company that um and i forget the villain's name it's nearly 24 hours since i finished <laughs> reading the book um uh, well there's, there's Ty- dr dominique and oh i'm having a blind tyron, tyron gaskill tyron. Yeah. Tyron, whose name is one letter short of Tyrant, Tyrant. just so yes. we're just so just he's coded. Get... Yeah, <laughs> he's coded as a villain. Um, so I want to say they work for World Corp or something. That is correct, yes. And yeah, they, their job is is the terraforming of new worlds because Earth is oversubscribed and uh, the human I'm... race is getting too large. I wonder large. if this is a th- was a th- was a tie-in with the um, notion we had in the mutants, uh, the John Pertwee story. And before mm. some pedant some pedant out there says, No, I don't mean the first Dalek story. As far as I'm <laughs> concerned, that's the Daleks. <laughs> but we talk about they uh, talk about grey cities and walks. And that's also referenced in the Doomsday in the Doomsday weapon. Yeah, there's a there's a, there is a kind of consistent future which is kind of not necessarily separate from the new adventures because the new adventures was really it doubled down on creating this kind of century uh, not century millennia maybe from from like two two thousand five hundred to three thousand five hundred yeah. and it was very consistent and it was very consistent with the Pertwee era and I think they they don't necessarily contradict any of that in in the eighth doctor books but they certainly don't make a, a conscious effort to connect yeah yeah exactly yeah. Uh, there is a little more of we're just going to we're just going to do, if we can tell a story we'll tell the story and damn the rest <laughs> absolutely so um did you did the book give you much of a sense of, of this kind of precarious position that humanity's in uh, it's there are, there are certain, certain elements in that you know they talk about nobody's heard bird song for two generations and mm. And it's just relentless grime and and there's a sense of the drudgery of greyness of every day. It's we get people going in and out of offices trying to enhance themselves to do, which I wonder if it's just if that was a, a Steve um, putting some social commentary on the time because I do recall a lot of celebrities doing enhancements, and I think it was around this time Leslie Ash had the trout pout, which went a bit wrong. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd, I'd obviously I'd completely forgotten that because we've all had to delete men behaving badly from our conscious brains because it's probably been cancelled. But yeah, she, she, she her, her entire mouth went. Um, it was like she'd had lip Viagra for about a year, like that. But uh, yeah, so um, what? So so would you have read this at the time it came out? Two thousand. Rather curious. Rather curious. This was one I missed. I can't oh. remember the reason why. I think it's possibly I just didn't find it in one of my local bookshops. Or yeah. 
So, yeah. so when did you first read it? It was actually it was, I purchased it a couple of years ago when I was building up when I was building up uh, rebuilding up the collection, trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Where it was sensibly affordable. Yeah. Uh, some book it yeah, not in the market and else chance. So I picked this one up and I was and when you and when you dropped down, I thought, well, oh, yeah, I'll pick that one up and have a look at it. Mm. Cool. So go on then. Uh, let's have your first impressions. Like, I think it's not as strong a novel as the as, um, Casualties War, and I think it's a little bit muddled. Okay. And certainly to a lot like the action sequences down towards the end, I think it gets a bit mishmashed of what, as to where everybody is, what everybody's doing. Some are intense, some are in the blocks. and it's, it's, Yeah. It's, it's, it's that last sort of, I want to say it's about 60 or 70 pages of just constant unrelenting action. Yeah. And you do find yourself sitting there thinking, bloody hell, can we just, can everyone sit down and have a cup of tea so I can get my bearings? I don't think it helps is that in a lot of this section we've got a character called Baines and a character called Danes. That is, yeah, I noticed that. That was, that was really, um, I don't understand how the editor didn't pick up on that and just say, do you know what, just... Let's just change one or the other name to, you know, make them slightly more different. Yeah, I mean, if it was all, they were like a Royce Naldo sort of comedy double act where people get mixing them up, that would be fine, but they're not, so it... It's, yeah, and um, I think, I think yeah, so it was, it was muddled towards the end. It was also... And this is kind of a hard... Criticism—it's obviously a very hard criticism to put into words because I can't speak. Um, but it felt very thin, like it—it yeah. it was just the story. Yeah, and it was there wasn't superstar. there wasn't a lot more to it than that. Uh, I mean, was, we start off with, with Joseph and Vita, and the whole the whole thing of the emergency of the complicated pregnancy and birth—that's mm. captured quite well. You can feel and. The subsequent scenes of the hollow emptiness afterwards. I think he does quite well there, with yes. her, with her, um, with her, with, with, with sustained, the sustained grief, and you know, Joseph trying to hide himself in work, and her retreating into herself. Mm. Yes, no, you're right. Well. That, plus that the, was plus the, and the whole connection. I mean, it's very established that there's a the sonic connection with the TARDIS and Angie. And that's that, but then it gets a bit thin. Like we have the woman Cody, who's in for basically to hit on hit on Baines, then is taken out of the narrative really quickly. I thought, oh, I thought that was going somewhere, yeah. and they kind of pick up on it on the end. But it seems like, oh, I should probably make a thematic connection, but it feels like it's mm. an afterthought. Or, mm. and you just get this very kind of gun rather than frock kind of. 200 pages of running around this i've i envisioned it as like a big atat from star wars just kind of yeah. thundering through this this desert yeah. world oh. i was thinking something on the storm mine in um robots death yeah churning up churning yeah. up everything in sight yeah could be that or, or like one of those big big things in in dune um but yeah it was it was just a very kind of um you know, it was kind of like watching Chibnall-era Doctor Who. It was just constant six or seven out of ten, doing exactly what it needed to do with no moments of brilliance, no moments of, you know, terrible awfulness. It just, it just, it just 
it's there. It, it's yeah. a book that was written. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an, there's an element of, I think it's also fitting into other pop, popular culture at the time, which was, of course, the X-Files. And the opening, se- the opening scene is very, very, to me, is very reminiscent of one of the eight, season eight episodes, which is, which opens with, in the delivery room, uh, delivery room, baby being born and concerned doctors taking the baby away and kind of pans down it. An alien! Oh. Title sequence. And I thought a similar, a sort of similar setup here, but they've put up a, they've put up a fake image and think you, so I wonder if that was conscious in his mind or just coincidence, because he's also gone for the more then idea of what an alien was, was the grey with the big eyes and the long fingers. Mm. I mean, he could he could have totally um, seen that cold open of that X-Files episode and then thought, oh, I'll just I'll just write the rest of this as a Doctor Who book and, and you know. Yeah, and this uh, way we don't get Robert Patrick in it or Annabeth Gish, which is sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, what is it? Uh, one of the things which did strike me was, was I wonder if this was a, had been commit had started out as being one of the Doctor on his own, perhaps because and Angie and Fitz seem to be heavily sidelined until the second half of the book. Yes, I noticed that they they're they're in it, I suppose, quite a lot. But they're in their own little bubble stories, and they don't really impinge on what's happening. Well, and they don't fit. Yeah, they really he might as well not be there. Time, Yeah, he seems to spend a lot of his time just being injured. Yeah. It's, well, at least and Angie has a more thematic connection with the plot, with the with the plot, the children and the aliens. But it does kind of take her up the action a bit. I'll tell you what it reminded me of in. Um, in the New Adventure Transit, which was the second ever novel to feature uh, Bernice Summerfield, Ben Aronovich sort of gives her amnesia so that the first outing of this new character, he doesn't really know the new character and he doesn't want to screw it up. So he just <laughs> removes her brain for the entire book. So he can't be accused of that. And that seems to be largely what's happened with Angie. It's like her yeah. personality has been taken out of the book. And I really like Angie as... Um, you know, okay. as one of these characters. So yeah, was, I mean, she's again, she's more unlike, say, Sam. She was a more familiar, more familiar character you can identify with. Yeah, okay, yeah, I identify as more student, one of the more studious, um, work orientated students who yeah, I'd be working with, who would have been working with at school or um, or at college at the time. Yeah, I always had sort of Millie from This Life in the back of my head. I don't know if you watched This Life, but uh, um, no, I didn't. You wouldn't have I... done because you were too young. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, but uh, the comparison had been made, and I did. Uh, I did do a quick internet search. I thought, yeah, that's, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. So she she was kind of important. Well, I mean, she was fundamental to the plot. But um, there was there was one little scene where she is kind of thinking about why she never got her finances in a position where she could have started to have kids with Dave and that was a real kind of human moment which I suppose especially now with cost of living is kind of increasingly resonant yes but other otherwise there wasn't an awful lot of personality in the book and with Fitz you you get exactly what he always does which is get injured have a cigarette and then try and have sex with any yeah, passing ladies I mean, which is yes. you know fair yeah, essentially this is one of the books where he's a walking hard on yeah yeah 
And you know, I like that. I like that he's consistently, um, you know, represented across all the books in exactly the same way. Like Benny Summerfield, although she required a lot more wit, I think, to write. And Fitz is just the avatar of the kind of typical fanboy. So, yeah, I think it. I mean, it, it's um, like, uh, but I think he's dynamic with this. Uh, but when he, it's. He doesn't take, he needs a large pool of characters to be interacting with, and when he's kind of sidelined to interacting with one, it get, he gets a bit dull because he's got not enough to bounce off. Or mm. there was that great scene at the end in the TARDIS where he and I forget the name of the young lady who's arrested him, but uh, they've ended Ta- up in Ayla, I think it is. Yeah, and they've ended up in the TARDIS, and Fitz sort of makes a clumsy pass at like, "Do you want to but- come and have a shower with me?" <laughs> and she's like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like it's like the the prose equivalent of that really awkward lingering close up on TV where a character yeah. sort of goes, you know, <sighs> yeah, you know, it was it was really nicely done. So there were a couple of of really beautiful moments in otherwise a sort of you know uh, a, a sci fi B movie, I guess. Yes. Yeah, let me have the character of Baines. Now he was quite an interesting one. Because he reminded me a little bit of the protagonist in Ray Bradbury's short story, The, the, the Pedestrian. Because he is very much, uh, very much, let's say he's described as a, he's arrested for being a, re- a regressive at the end of the story. But he seems very much of the interested in the world and the world around, not enhancements and artificiality. He's got that sort of human element. Mm. And, and his dismissal of Carly is, oh God, is is built on later but it and his involvement with the with the, with the deer which i was thinking oh is this going to be a sci-fi equivalent of we're building on a native american grave <laughs> and fortunately they fortunately they do go that doesn't go into that territory mm. but That's... this is when the thought uh, what is upset with his passion to go and get his digs is dig saved and not absorbed into the ever expanding terraforming. It made me think this novel might actually be better with Sam in it. Yeah, because he could have put because Sam would have been a character who could have gone through because followed the action through Sam because she'd be going, No, we've got to preserve this. We've got she yeah, had the righteous yeah. indignation to have to get it to get part of the story. And Absolutely. I think that's the thing is we need we need smart fit side to be involved with Joseph and Vita. Or maybe Angie, yeah, to be involved and to get that story because they, it's a it's that bit of saywardism where we where he's focusing on his own sets of characters who don't, I don't think they even interact with the Doctor or, or, or no, I don't or think the they do. Crew. Yeah, it's that very weird saywardism. So unless yeah. he's, so maybe Emerson is trying to satirise say the clumbo matchiness of Eric Sayward. Let's assume he is because it makes this book so much more um, so much more of a, a, a worthwhile text. Um, another idea I just had is is what if they brought Benny Summerfield back for for one book in the Eighth Doctor range? Because as soon as you've got a dig and you know buried treasure and, and ruins of a lost race, then Benny Summerfield's going to be the perfect person to champion that cause. Or Bev Tarrant from the uh, from the Seventh Doctor range on yeah. the Big Finish, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And the and yeah, that might the rights might have been easier for that for that character because I think so. But um, you know, we we can't uh, we can't go around casting these things with who we'd have liked to see in them, or we'd be here all day. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I want 12. No, I want 13. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I think um, Emerson's made a mistake in not getting Fitz and or Angie involved into the main story earlier, and Fitz isn't really involved at all. He's... Which makes me wonder, did they originally bring, plan to bring Fitz back? Because I think Lance Parker did say he wanted him to get shot in the head in Father Time or something. Or... Oh, wow. But yeah, but this might this might be something I remember remembering from a forum. So yeah, I mean, because Fitz is as and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's like the longest serving companion certainly in the books. Um, I think you might be right. I think he's he's in a good I don't know fifty plus of them. Um, and it it does seem odd that someone who's sort of so routinely captured, shot at, knocked into a coma, boiled alive, blown up gassed just just he just stubbornly won't die <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine how, having the villain that's supposed to go why won't you die <laughs> what is your special <laughs> ability i'm just yes, really I'm, yes, they feed you through the sawmill the giant sawmill yeah ah. <laughs> and he just puts himself back together and he's just too cowardly to die i think that's what it is so what a, so the other thing that um and we, we should probably talk about the villain of the piece, Tyron Gaskill, who I kept thinking of Ian McGaskill, the weatherman, but uh, very different. <laughs> okay, now I've got that image in my head. <laughs> very different menacing figure. But he's, let's say he's about 30, and Baines is about 60. 60, I guess, yes. And um, Tyron hasn't got any parents, and Baines hasn't got a wife or child, but there was a, and it kind of lumbers towards this it's kind of ridiculous yeah, payoff that he's actually his son. Again, and that doesn't go anywhere either. It's kind of oh. it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. It comes out of nowhere. For me, it really didn't work. No, it's. I think it was just to make the try and connect Carly with a deeper connection between Carly with Carly's death at the start, which again is seems to be there for the sake of yeah so it would actually make more sense if Carly had been taken out of the routine and it was his ex-wife trying to recruit mm, him and absolutely. then that would yeah it just it just felt like a really kind of cl- not not clumsy because you know at least they it, it worked on in some in some ways but it just it wasn't necessary it didn't add anything to the book and it 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 kind of pushed me out a bit. It was yeah. like it was like oh no, just no, no. that's silly. Yeah, if you're going to do that, do do something with it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird criticism of a Doctor Who book to say oh no, that's silly. But most of it's <laughs> to do with giant alien robots made out of jelly invading <laughs> planets using their plastic avatars or whatever. But you know, just sometimes you can you, you, enough's enough. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the things I noticed was that it follows is it from the vanish, vanishing point or year of the intelligent tigers can't remember which round but they've both got those both got similar themes of genetic alterations to um, the populace yes whereas um, vanishing point it's a, it's a deliberate effect by the villain to try and streamline the race this is more by proxy of accident um, due to energy released at um, zygote formation, which brings, which makes me think, was Steve Emerson thinking of the, of the final Quatermass serial, <laughs> in which all the in which all the children of a certain generation have this urge to join the 
one of the, the pipe people or the peace people and follow the ley lines to Stonehenge and <laughs> the planet people, that's what they're called. Planet people, yeah. Because the alien influence affects all the new formed organisms. So I wonder if that, or if that was just a coincidence. It's a weird thing that he... So, so just to, I suppose, summarise a little bit of the plot for anyone listening who hasn't recently read this book, but there are some babies born to people who are not quite babies, and it turns out they're like little greys who are in some way connected with the planet, and they represent the uh, indigenous uh, you okay. know, species or, yeah, whatever... And they are, they don't, when the book finishes, they don't, they're not going to become human again. They're not going to, they're kind of just in limbo. And there's what, seven or eight of them with ridiculous yeah. names from cats, I think it is. Yeah, from two um, idiots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just, and you, you, and that is quite interesting because normally you'd have a very clear, um, it would all be tidied up and they'd all be like made human or they'd be, happy to go back to their, you know, start a new alien society on the planet. These guys are kind of left in limbo, and I did like well, that. Well, the suggestion I got was that they were, they, that they were more, it was, they were antibodies generated by the planet to get rid of the humans. Yeah. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't do a great job of that. <laughs> uh, see, I get the impression is that what with Tyron gone, the planet's likely to be abandoned again, and mm. then it can reform and rebuild. Mm. So, well, if they'd just been allowed sort of twenty years to reach physical maturity, and then they could have implemented a scheme to get rid of Tyron. But as it was, I think expecting a few babies to yeah, do so your think, bidding is is asking a lot. Yes, yeah, so I think what they should perhaps should have done was had this set twenty years after the mysterious births, and of course. And you can circumnavigate the gap between the top with the TARDIS arriving because the TARDIS never works properly anyway. So exactly, it could miss it can miss it by twenty years because it's the TARDIS <laughs> and it doesn't come and it doesn't come across as a plot <sighs> contrivance. And I can't even remember where we are now, but presumably that so they're in they're in the proper TARDIS again. They're not inside compassion. Yeah, you've got the TARDIS. They've has just been rebuilt after yep. hundred years on Earth. They've been. Yep. They did Earthworld, they did Vanishing Point of New Intelligent Tigers. And so, yes, now they're just up in the band. This is pre-arrival of Sabbath. Right, so it's in that, that sweet spot where everything's basically back the way it was. So, yeah, the TARDIS, you know, can still be uh, unreliable and unprogrammable. And the Doctor, I think, has still not got all of his... It gets very difficult with these books because every sort of 12 books the doctor loses his memory again and you're just yeah. thinking well he must just be a, a functioning idiot at this point <laughs> yes i think you might be right <laughs> um i mean i think you know he's that you know he's just falling on his instincts alone and and actually and that was one of the things that we we discussed when we were talking about casualties of war is how the doctor is always the doctor and even in that book where he's just uh a very ordinary man from the ministry. Um, and okay, he's got a bizarre big blue box that he insists on bringing up from London on a train what? for some reason. Um, but he's still just, even if you take away his memory, even if you take away all of his skills, he's still quintessentially the doctor doing the right thing. 
And incidentally, um, here he turns up as a he turns up as a, ma- a sort of man from the ministry as well because he's got mistaken yes, identity. Doctor Doctor Domek, where again he's not he's not lying as such. When people ask him if he's the doctor, he's like, "Well, <laughs> yes, yeah. I am." Um, but also, this is also incredibly clumsy foreshadowing because if you're going to have him impersonate somebody, somebody who. He's either going to turn the person's either going to turn up at the end and do a do a do a Doctor Doctor Who joke, yeah, or the other person's <laughs> going to turn up and cause a problem, and then yeah. likely to be the villain of the piece. Yeah. So, and that's something, and and probably that's just because he's lost his memory so often he doesn't recognise that that's a really bad trope of science <laughs> fiction. Otherwise, he'd avoid it like the plague. But, yeah. <laughs> so. When when you look back at the Eighth Doctor books, I mean, I I don't know if you're still like a, a huge fan of the TV show, but whereabouts as as a, as an era, whereabouts do these books sit in your affections? I'd probably, probably sit around for me a little heart, or probably around mid eighties. Who does? Okay. Is that yeah? Is you got you got some. You've got some very a lot of functioning stories, and there's a lot of, and there's quite a bit of dross, and there's some, and there's some outstanding, mm. and there's a lot of you thinking this could do, but there's overall sense of we could do with a bit more editing, mm. and and suggesting you not enough time, and perhaps disagreements with it within the set, and particularly if a particular author was involved with trying to shape shape where he wanted the series to go. And <laughs> so, yeah, so you only one particular author was took great joy in slagging every other book off after while he wrote comes out. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I've not I've not dug into that too much, and I I I was never kind of aware of all that really. I read the reviews in the magazine, I read the books. That was pretty much my complete involvement I'm, with these. But a lot of people yeah, do see of, these. Sorry. I think I read an interview with um, with um, with Mad Larry, and he just he just comes off as a very bitter. I don't know if he was just trying to go for shock shock jock interviewing. I don't know. It's strange to yeah that that he he did come across as being that bitter. I mean, when you when you're you know quite young and you've got some books published and you're doing quite well in life, I don't really think it's particularly kind of a, a good look to be quite so scathing of other people. You don't get, for example, Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davis turning round at the end of a series and going, oh, that episode by Mark Gatiss was complete rubbish. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, it's not really fantastic at all. <laughs> no, you don't. Um, I mean, you think, say, Moff's probably a lot more critical of his own work. He's, mm. okay, but said, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. I was I think he's quite harsh on the beast below, but I think it's probably not as bad as he thinks it is. And I loved it. I, I, yeah. I think I there's probably some structural problems, and it's it seems to take a slow time to build. It's kind of over very quickly. Mm. Mm. But you could actually argue that the structure of a lot of new Who time that oh we've got to get to the end. I, yeah, I mean this the, uh, and I was literally about to say this new format of forty-five minute episodes. It's been going for nigh on twenty years at this point. So you know, I should have got used to it being the the format. And to be fair, a lot of the writers should have got used to the requirements of pacing your story to fill forty-five minutes. But but the Eighth Doctor Adventures, if they had been. 
I don't know if if they'd been on TV. I guess even back in the late nineties and early noughties, they would have been kind of forty-five minute episodes. I think there would have been, yeah. And maybe each book would have been two or three episodes. So yeah, I think I think yeah, probably two, three episodes. I think, but I think they'd probably go for the most the more Buffy approach of a sort of ongoing story arc and you know having standalone stories where. Mm. Because uh, it was on its it was at its time for sort of two thousand when the book was published. I thought I'll go and try and do a submission myself, and I figured yeah, I think you don't bother trying with the eighth Doctor range because they're not going to be interested in unsolicited material. Well, they might, but <laughs> I figured eight for the past Doctor range, which I could never really get past the very basic idea. I think you need to put some meat and meat and dressing on this to make it work, and I got the bare bones of an idea. But it's thinking, okay, that would be great. Okay, that'd be a great. That'd be a great hook. Well, where do you go from there? Yeah, it's it's you. You do need to spend a long time kind of gestating these ideas and linking things up and and slowly assembling, rather than just sitting down and bashing out a synopsis. I don't know that the by the time we got to the BBC books, I don't know that they really did discover many writers through the slush pile it was no, either it was either old virgin writers or it was steve or, cole or it was justin richards or or somebody who was established like paul like paul mars or yeah. Mark morris yeah but i think that was more of an in-house i think that might have been a more in-house policy in general that they wanted to go through established or represented people yeah i imagine, I imagine it's probably a, saves headaches in legal problems and well I say problems with technicalities and contracts and well I think I think reading between the lines um the reason they would have preferred established professional authors is that they really weren't doing a lot of editing or having no, a lot weren't. of time or resource to helping the authors even no, sort of make the books you know marry up with each other so they yeah, probably just it, wanted to leave it with people who could be trusted to get yeah, on with true. it I think there's a definite sign of that in the towards the end of the of the Sabbath arc when they start doing the collapsing multiverse thing which you know, why what is that oh god yeah I remember that there was something there was I'm, I'm thinking of the cover of um one of the books and it's got the you know the executive toy with all the balls that and it's yeah, it was it was this sort of phase of very complex. Yeah, I think it's is that uh, I think it's one of, I think it's one of uh, Paul Leonard writes, and it's established that we have to focus the life of all the urges on Sabbath because he's because there's only one of him in all of existence. You just had a duplicate of him two books ago. <laughs> yeah, apart from that. Shh. <laughs> but the thing is, I later learned from David Bishop is that when he wrote the Domino Effect, Sabbath wasn't in it. Oh. And then he was told to put Sabbath in it, and that kind of boxed up the next few novels. Uh, yeah, no. There's it's it's always frustrating when you when you hear things like that, or you or you read things, and you think, you know, you've been building up to this across twelve, twenty, forty books. Why couldn't you have made it pay off? You know, yeah. I, mean, I think the initial set of books with where Sabbath is in is is about, and if. And if not in the book himself, his presence is sort of felt mm. kind of worse because it gives mm. the impression of Sabbath is kind of like setting up the new times, sort of the reset universe's time lords, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's trying to do basically he's trying to do the time lords job. 
And he must and get rid of this old hat, this old fart. <laughs> this, this weird lunatic with the, the long curly hair and the green frock coat. Beautiful Mentioning that, in, um, like in Casualties of War, they just casually accept the Doctor's wandering around in this sort of vaguely romantic poet outfit and say, oh, it's a city gent. Yeah. It's like have none of you ever been to the city? Have none of you ever thought? I think well, I think I think they're trying to say kind of oh he's the Lord of the Manor thing or he's a bit mm. strange. Yeah, he does. I mean, he <laughs> wasn't he wasn't a figure that that would ever fit in. But then what yeah. Doctor ever is? Yeah. Or or at least they have oh this must be how they dress for parties or something when they're having soirees. But then he, he rides up and one of these he's dressed like a lunatic. <laughs> I suppose the only Doctor that really gets away with that is the Ninth Doctor, because he looks like a divorced media studies teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other Doctors just look ridiculous. <laughs> well, you might get away with, with, with Tennant or maybe Matt Smith in, in this. In the, mm. Tennant in his sort of blue business, in his blue suit, maybe. Or maybe. Matt in his... If he took his bow tie off and his... Because he does kind of have a geography teacher vibe about him. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. I've, I've turned into David Tennant now. That's that's not <laughs> going to happen again. Um, <laughs> so um, is there anything else you wanted to say on the subject of Dark Progeny? Uh, yes, it's like say, difficult second album. I think it, what it really needed was... was and then it's go through it and go, no, no, do this, do this. And you need to move this character here so we can get those. Oh, we'll get these two involved in the actual plot and get them to meet the main characters. Absolutely. And th- so the villain's just a generic villain who's... His motivation should be... His motivation says we need to get... We need a new planet. Okay. Yeah. You should have built on that more rather than just making him a bit of a dick. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he. There's this whole kind of he's obsessed with money, which is fair enough. And then there's yeah. this sort of descent into madness in the last I mean, kind of thirty pages, which wasn't I mean, signposted. Yeah, I mean, it's if they've done it is the fact that this sudden determined, angry and determination to keep the terraforming going was being was a seed which had been picked up by the children was being amplified. That would then connect it, connect the strands together a bit better. But it's yeah. Like it's uh, it's got the vague of and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and oh we better put it all together and hope nobody notices. Yeah, I mean it's in isolation it it's it's kind of mildly frustrating, but at the time coming as you say off the back of books like Vanishing Point and certainly Year of Intelligent Tigers, which was just immense. This must have felt like a kind of bit of a treading water kind of a month. Yeah, you know? it feels yeah. It feels like some of the one of the early new adventures when they're just still finding their feet and the authors are effectively trying to learn how to write a novel, a lot of them. Mm. Emerson didn't want to write a Doctor Who novel. He wanted to write a dark science fiction tale about a mother losing a child and battling against a corrupt and brutal regime who stole a baby because it could be turned into a weapon. 
But hey, the contract says Doctor Who, so he'll find a way to cram him in amongst all the fresh new characters he's invented. Steve Emerson didn't want to write a Doctor Who novel with companions either. Amongst all the points of view planned for the story, there wasn't really room for them. But hey, he's been saddled with Angie and Fitz, so he'll find a way. Even if it means knocking them both unconscious for two-thirds of the book so they're out of the picture. Now, I doubt that that's how things really went when Steve was starting to write Dark Progeny. But it's certainly how I felt after reading it. I mean, by 50% of the way through, there was the mere glimmer of a plot involving the old children. Fitz and Angie were out cold, and the Doctor had featured in half a dozen brief scenes. Still, we'd had lots of time with Vetta and Baines and conflicted Cop Foley and all-out baddie Tyron and his love for his mind probe, and all the other supporting characters. Too many, in fact. Not to mention people placing interminable video calls between each other and conspiring to cover things up. The problem is, what they're covering up isn't really that interesting or something that hasn't been done before, and better, in a million other SF novels. It's also generic. A villainous corporation conducting nasty experiments, a planet that's alive and fighting back against the bad humans who are running amok over it. Even the grey, bulbous-headed kids with their big black eyes is straight out of every UFO sighting from the 1970s. Saying that, I did enjoy the stuff with Vetter and Joseph and their computer hacking and attempts to uncover the truth. The way Vetter swung from overwhelming grief to resolute anger and back again was believable. Less so with archaeologist Daniel Baines, who started off strong but then basically faded into the background. And that's symptomatic of one of the problems with the whole novel. There's a lot of attempted character development, which unfortunately doesn't really develop into anything. Even the Doctor only gets a couple of good scenes. One where he rages against the society that allows experimentation on babies and labels them evil just because they're different. On the other, when he weeps over the apparent death of a child, only to realise, with obvious joy, that their connection to the planet can bring them back to life. I also thought it was very sweet that the Doctor gave them all names of the cats from T.S. Eliot, and that they in turn named him as Old Deuteronomy. What I can't forgive is the random introduction of giant rats into the ducting, seemingly there only because it's a Doctor Who book, so there has to be something scary, as if torturing the Doctor, killing multiple characters and severely wounding the companions isn't enough. That and the utterly left field and unnecessarily revelation two pages from the end that bad guy Gaskell Tyrons related to another character. It served no purpose whatsoever. I recall that I thought that Steve Emerson's last book, Casualties of War, was pretty good and examined the horrors of war with some psychological depth. It's a shame then that this one doesn't live up to that promise. It's not really a bad book, just a rather dull and predictable one.